And now as we come to your word, help us uh, to not just talk about the church, but to be the church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the South, pretty much everybody has an opinion about the church. Now, if you go to other countries, or if you go to other areas of the country, uh, of this country, uh, not everybody has an opinion about the church, but in the South, pretty much everybody has an opinion, and it falls into generally one of two categories. On one hand, it's, I don't mind the church, uh, I'm there for the high holy days, I'll go there at Easter, I'll go there for Christmas, you know, I like that some people like it, it doesn't bother me, but it seems generally irrelevant. On the other side, it's the church is my everything. It's my friends. It's my life. It's everybody I know is in church. I can't, I can't live without church. If they change a program or if they change uh, an evening or if they do anything, I, I just I, I, I collide with my own convictions. I can't possibly live without the church. And here in Acts chapter 2, we see the beginnings of the church. And the challenge today is to reimagine it. As Christ had put it before us, how should we think about the church? Because it's not exclusive. It's not a homogeneous group. And it's also not just something we do twice a year, three times a year, four times a year. It's got to be reimagined. Because when Pentecost happened, all the people were there for Pentecost from every language, tribe, tongue, and nation. And the Holy Spirit came. And then the church was established from that point. And so we get this beautiful passage of how believers started to live after Christ left in the ascension. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, we see... um, that the church is both structural and it's spontaneous. It's spont- it has spontaneity to it. Uh, m- meaning this. I remember my first gig I ever played. Uh, I think I was 14. I was a drummer in this orchestra. They needed a kit player. And so my drum teacher asked me to come play. And he was going to play bass. And I still remember this. this a huge crowd in Charlotte. Hundreds and hundreds of people. We only had to play like two or three songs. And we're back in the green room. And we're walking out, you know, through all the black, you know, curtains and everything. And he put his hands on my shoulder right before we went out. And he said, Andy, I need you to know this. He's whispering to my ear. Andy, I need you to know this. The saxophone player absolutely stinks. So you have to create a groove so deep that he can't possibly crawl his way out of it. And that was he was like, push me out. That's what we did. I mean, that's the thing, because the saxophone player had the solo in this little thing. You have to create a group so deep that this guy can't even crawl his way out of it. In other words, in music, there's a structure. And there's also spontaneity. 
Uh, there's sheet music that you have to follow, but there's also, you can play around with the notes, with the rhythm, with the timing, all of that. That's what happens in the church. There's both structure and there's spontaneity, and it comes in four ways. First of all, is teaching. Here we see they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, teaching is not indoctrination. That's not what it is. Uh, it's not, let's test and see if you can uh, recite everything that we can recite. We're going to test you every week. We're going to test you every other week to make sure that we have properly indoctrinated you. It's also not tribalism. Some of you have said to me over the years, uh, Andy, you're too critical about the South. Why don't you talk about San Francisco? And here's the reason. We're not in San Francisco. If I was preaching in San Francisco, I would talk about their idols. But I'm preaching in Greenville, South Carolina, so I have to talk about our idols. Because the point is not tribalism, creating an echo chamber that makes us feel great and self-righteous about all the people out there. The point is for us to change. And teaching what it does, the structural teaching, is to remind us of the bigger picture. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration of what God is doing in this world and what God wants to do through the church. Arthur Brooks studied 1,300 articles on the issue of loneliness. Why are people so lonely today? And he came up, he summarized it all, and he came up with four reasons why from all the articles of why we're so lonely. We have a need for close friends. We have a need for meaningful work. We have a need for family. And we have a need for a theology to make sense of it all. And all four are kind of categorically being attacked right now in culture. Like all four are kind of being ripped down. But what the church does is it provides all of those. A family where you know you can belong. Close relationships. A faith in work teaching you that the church starts outside of these walls. That what you do Monday through Friday matters. And a theology to make sense of it all. And then it's also spontaneous. Um, besides structural, which is what we're doing right now, there's a spontaneity to it. Do you remember the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4? I think it will be on the screen, maybe not. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Uh, and so that's what they call the Shema. It's a famous, famous, all the little kids of Israel first thing they ever memorized and then it goes on after that and it says these commands i give you today are to be upon your hearts you're you're to talk about them when you walk along the road you're to talk about them uh, teach them diligently to your children talk about them when you sit in your house that's a spontaneity in other words structurally we're doing teaching now but you know where the teaching really happens when you send a text an email when you make a call to a friend in your community group or your journey group, and you say, I just want to remind you that the Lord loves you. I just want to remind you uh, that we're called to glorify him. When we do that spontaneous uh, teaching and fellowship, that's where it really starts to take. That's when the church becomes a church. Teaching, fellowship. We desperately need fellowship. Now, churches have uh, done fellowship in a couple of different ways. Some churches can err by saying, we want you to come to church 
And we want you to come to community groups. We want you to come to journey groups because our annual report is coming up. And we want to show the whole church that we've grown, right? So we want to use you to pad our numbers to make sure that we can prove to everybody the church is growing. And other times the church says, uh, we don't want to grow. We only want people in our community that look just like us, that think just like us. We want to be homogeneous. But here, back to the text, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Meaning, they were devoted, joyfully devoted to making sure that they met together, that they had koinonia, that they had fellowship. And the modern objection to that is this. I'm a spiritual person. Uh, but I find God in the woods. I'm a spiritual person, but I like being alone. I'm a spiritual person, but I don't need the church. And honestly, I don't have a problem with that. But Jesus does. Because all of the one another commandments, all of the commandments that say, look, you have to go up against each other. You have to rub up against each other. We need the friction to provide sanctification in our lives. You've got to have the structural fellowship, this koinonia, where it's coming to the church day after day, unless you're providentially hindered, to let God's word rub off all the stains in your life. Listen to what one person sent me. She sent this email. I have permission to read it. I'm going to read it to you. (laughs) I'm going to try to read it without crying. She writes about Mitchell Road. I want to write to the elders to thank you for our church. You helped our family through the loss of my dad in 2004. That was the church. You helped me through the loss after I broke my back and spent six months out of work from 2008 and 2009. That was the church. You helped me in the care of my mother when she was bedridden after she passed in 2010. That was the church. You helped me when my brother moved in with me and his children were here for seven years after his divorce from 2012 to 2019. That was the church. You helped me when I didn't know how to help my brother with his addiction problem, who's now a believer That was the church. You helped me take care of my dad. Um, You helped me take care after my death of my dad and visit my brother after his aorta started coming in part. That was the church. You prayed for me and you helped me financially when I couldn't work. That was the church. I've always felt a huge part of Mitchell Road. I'm a single woman, but it doesn't mean I feel like less than any other family member. God has given me my niche. God has given me this church. And she later put an email to me and Elizabeth and she said, I love you and Elizabeth and I'm changed ever so slightly, week by week, by sitting in our pews and letting the word of God wash over me. I'm just changed ever so slightly ever so, maybe not a big like mountaintop experience, but ever faithfully since 2004, ever so slightly, because I put myself in those pews, I'm changed ever so slightly by rubbing up against people, by the church being the church. There's a structural element to the church, and there's also a spontaneous element to the church. You see fellowship in verse 42, But if you look at verse 44, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as they had need. In other words, it's us being the church for each other. It's us practicing fellowship with each other. One friend years ago 
couldn't afford a Christmas tree. And he mentioned it casually. Like, imagine that. We were all in our 20s. I, I was in the group he mentioned it to. And later that night, a truck drove by his house. And out from the back bed of the truck comes a flying Christmas tree onto his front yard. <laughs> when Elizabeth's mom died, we just got home exhausted. First funeral I ever did was bury my mother-in-law. And we got home, and it was raining, and my grass was about that high. Eight o'clock in the morning, Daryl Stewart's out there mowing my grass. That's the church. So many times I've gone to a hospital rooms and uh, they'll say, Andy, we're so glad you're here, but I'm exhausted. People have been here all afternoon. That's the church. You're the church. You're the ones that established this kingdom of love and care and mercy outside of these walls. You're the ones that put your hands on each other's backs and say, we're going to make it. As Stu Weber, the army ranger, said, When you're a ranger, they tell you, you go out together, you work together, and you better come back in together. And there's people that you know in this congregation that need help and love and care, and that's not my responsibility, that's yours, because we're the church. I've got a good friend, he rides with a all the famous cyclists in this area. I don't know if you know that or not, but we have a number of really world-class cyclists that have moved to Greenville through George Hincapie, basically. And he was riding in a group, the lead group, and he was about to get dropped, which means you get dropped and you're just all by yourself, you know, down and uh, you get dropped from the ground. I don't understand how all that works, but you get dropped. And Christian Vandeveld, who used to ride for the uh, postal service team, Tour de France rider, Christian Vanderbilt, who's a friend of his, knew that he was struggling and was, you know, cycling without any hands up a hill and saw that this friend of mine was struggling and still without putting any hands on the hand. I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm cycling right now. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just realized I was doing that. Were y'all not going to tell me I was doing that? He was cycling. I cannot not do that. He was cycling. And as he was cycling, my friend was struggling. He came back and started talking to him, put his hand on the back of his seat, still without any hands on his handlebars, and pulled him up into the group, cycled him back into the group. That's the church. That's what we do. You find the people in this community that are struggling, and you don't feel self-righteous about that. You say, come on, we're going to believe again. We grab each other by the necks and say, we're, we're going to study scripture. We're going to pray. We're going to get you through this prodigal child that you have. We're going to get you through this financial distress you have. We're going to bring you back into the group. That's the church. They distributed all their needs. This is not communism. Don't go there. They had margin for loving and for caring. They, they made themselves available in fellowship to love each other. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. It's a very formal, this part is a structural part of coming to this communion table. You know in Jewish customs, you know what happens in the Jewish wedding? 
Uh, they go through all the customs. It's very different than how we do it. Uh, but basically, in a Jewish wedding, the bride can bail at any time. And, and during that structure of the wedding, uh, there's a moment where the groom takes the wine cup and drinks it and then puts it on the table and passes it over to his maybe future bride. And if she takes the cup and drinks it, that means she agrees. But if she passes, the wedding's off. That's what we do at communion. Christ has already taken the cup, and he has already drank it, and he says, I am yours, I want you. And at communion, when we come to this table and we drink the cup, we're the bride who says, and we are willing to be yours, to be devoted to you as well. So when we come to those means of grace, the first Sunday of the month, that's what we're doing. It's the breaking of bread. But then it's also spontaneous. If you look down at verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So there's one sense where it's structural. There's another sense where it's just spontaneous, where you just practice hospitality. They receive food with glad, with generous hearts. Now there's one individual who did a survey for Christians about their reluctance for hospitality. And here's what they came up with. I think they surveyed 1,200 Christians. Guests frighten us, number one. Number two, maybe you should invite different guests, by the way. (laughs) Number two, we feel our furnishings are too modest or inadequate. We feel that we're too busy or the cost is too great. It is exhausting to clean the house and prepare food. I'm ashamed of my inadequate meal or ability to cook. And and what the surveyor said is this. Almost all of those come down to pride. It's all about me. It's all about what I think. It's, It's all about how I look. And so Karen Burton Maine said, when she wrote the book, Open Heart, Open Home, she says, true hospitality comes before pride. I reminded myself, and she talks about this uh, person that had come over to her house, and she said, I reminded myself dismally, determined, I welcomed the woman with, wor- with warmth, invited her into the unsightly rooms, and refused to embarrass her with my apologies. I consciously let go of my pride. And this is the woman's response. I used to think you were perfect, she said, but now I think we can be friends. That's what hospitality is. That's what the church is. That's what breaking bread is. That's what having lunch or coffee or breakfast with somebody is. Not showing that you're perfect or you have it all together, but showing this watching world that we don't have it together, but we have a great Savior who's given us everything that we need for life and for godliness. Look, it's going to be a mess, hospitality is, breaking bread with each other being the church outside these walls. For example, we had our new members class that everybody comes over for dessert in our new members class. And we had, a lot of you were there. We had, I don't know, 80, um, maybe more, 90 people at our house for dessert. I remember in my hallway, I was walking through to try to check on Elizabeth and see how she was doing. And there was people, and there was a baby in the middle of the hallway. And I just stepped over it. And I was like, they'll find a home somewhere, I guess. And it's a mess. The cars were lining both sides of the street. And at the end of the night, some truck and a boat went careening up that street. And 
hit four cars. We had to call the cops, do the deal. Some of you got hit. Some of you are active in that investigation. (laughs) Church is a mess. It's a mess. Hospitality is messy. Life is messy. The cross was messy. But we're called to be in the midst of it with each other. To love each other through the breaking of bread. To reimagine what life would look like if we actually lived this way. And lastly, prayers. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And if you look down at verse 46 and then chapter 3, verse 1, day by day they attended the temple together. And then look down at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. There is a structural element to prayer. Morning, noon, and night, basically, Psalm 55. And next year, we're reading through the Bible this year, but next year we're going to explore prayer together is what we're going to do. And one of the things that we're going to be pushing on you, so let me just go ahead and tell you now, is this pattern, this biblical pattern of morning, noon, and night. Those, that's the structure, the biblical structure for praying, for reminding yourself who God is. In the morning, praying about your day ahead. During the uh, midtime, praying about where you are and the people around you and what you're experiencing. And then at night, praying prayers of gratitude. God, thank you for the things that happened this day. That's the biblical structure that happens with prayer. And here, the fellowship of believers, they were devoted to teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and the breaking of bread. But it's prayer that is structural and also spontaneous. John Chrysostom says it this way, prayer is basically a conversation with God. So here's what I want you to do. Think about your best friend. Could be your spouse, maybe not. Could be somebody else. Just think about your best friend. How do you talk to them? Sometimes quickly, Sometimes texts, sometimes long conversations over a cup of coffee. How do you talk to them? The way you talk to your best friend is how you talk to the Lord. The same way. There's a structure to it. Sometimes you have to check in. Sometimes you have to make sure you know, you're in the right mindset with each other. And then also there's a spontaneity to it. So Anne Lamont says in uh, her book, Help, Thanks, Wow, prayer means that in some unique way we believe we're invited into a relationship with someone who hears us when we speak in silence. What prayer does is knows, like Hagar in the Old Testament, knows that when we speak, our God hears us. And this is the church, both structural and spontaneous teaching, fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and prayer. Now, let me say this, and then I'll actually be done. When does uh, Mitchell Road meet? When does a church meet? Ray Cortez pressed this upon us. I hope you remember. It's not 8.30, 9.45, and 11. Church actually starts after the benediction. This is formal worship. And you're the church. And one of the things that happened in that new members class, when we saw all those people in our home, I thought, who's going to care for all these people? Who's going to know all of them? Who's going to connect all of them? And the answer is this, you are. You're going to look around at Mitchell Road, and you're going to see the people in need. 
And you're going to love and you're going to care for and you're going to encourage and you're going to pray with each other and you're going to remind each other of the gospel that we're created, that we're fallen, that we're redeemed and that we will be restored. And we're going to break bread together once a month until the Lord come back. And when we do all of that, hopefully what will happen, verse 47, is that the Lord will add to our number, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. I want you to reimagine a devoted church. Reimagine what this place could be like. Reimagine what your role is in bringing people to a saving knowledge of Christ. Reimagine what community looks like. Most of us in this room are lonely. Most of us in this room are struggling. We desperately, desperately need each other. To pray with each other, to teach each other, to break bread with each other, to do all the things the church is supposed to do. And may the Lord add to our number in the process. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And now, Father, we love this place. We pray that you would help us outside of these walls to be hospitable to be thoughtful to be kind to be gracious Christ you have died and you were resurrected and you were ascended and you could have ended the whole thing there but you left us here as your church to be a witness to the world of what life could look like. So, Father, I pray that would happen in unique and wonderful ways. I pray, Father, that even right now you would put people on our minds and on our hearts that we need to reach out to. We pray that we would uh, structurally commit ourselves to prayer and to fellowship and the breaking of bread, to teaching. But we pray also that with spontaneity, we would, we would live a life where your love for us just oozes out of us. And that people would know that this place on the east side of Greenville is a place of refuge where they can hear truth, they can hear honesty, uh, they can hear Uh, things that are going to convict them and at the same time, a place where they know they're loved and cared for. Jesus, we pray as a church that you'd make us your church and that we would honor you in the process. We pray in your name. Amen.